Matthew, chapter 10, verses 40 to 42. Matthew writes, and Jesus says, Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would, let's uh, join me in prayer briefly, please. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for this morning. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of our bed and into worship with your bride here at Christ Community Church. Lord, we pray and give you thanks for our worship so far this morning, for our confessions of sin and faith, Lord, for the songs and the hymns that we have sung, Lord, for hearing your word read. And so, Lord, as we continue in worship, Lord, we pray, God, that you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears to hear and to understand and to believe, Lord, what you have spoken and what you have had written. And Lord, we pray, God, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name, amen. Well, uh, compared to a couple of weeks ago, the text this morning is uh, not just short, it is extremely brief. <laughs> we did 27 verses like two weeks ago, so that, you know, three verses is, you know, that's like fast-forwarding, right? But, uh, but that being said, um, I don't know if you've picked up on this or not over the last few weeks, but by the end of... The sermon time this morning, the homily time this morning, we will actually have looked at the entirety of Matthew 10 from beginning to end, which uh, I've been back among you guys, Sharon, and I've been back for about two and a half years now, and I don't know if we've ever looked at one whole chapter in its full entirety through the lectionary. The lectionary jumps around a bit, right? So uh, I thought that was kind of cool. But anyway, uh, but the only reason I bring that up is because Matthew 10, uh, really, and along with what we looked at in Matthew 9 at the calling of Matthew and following. That whole passage encompasses what becomes known as Jesus' missionary discourse in the Gospel of Matthew, right? It's his mission sermon, essentially. And so today, in these three verses, we actually see the conclusion of that sermon. This is the end, right? This is really where, if you know, you're a good Baptist, this is the, the application part of the sermon, right? This is where, where, where it's at. So, so what I want to do this morning as we look at the conclusion of this missionary sermon, building out of everything we've looked at from the calling of Matthew until now, I want to focus first on the straightforward reading, right? What does the text say? What does it mean? But then I want to do what, um, I, want to, I want to focus in on a couple of elements that Jesus draws upon to take us into what Origen calls the mystical meaning of the text or the spiritual meaning, the the mysterious meaning behind some, some elements in this text. And those are the two things I really want to focus on this morning as we look at these three verses. So first, just digging into the straightforward meaning, right? What are the words? What does it say? What does it mean? What's the historical grammatical understanding of this passage? And so in these verses, Jesus, again, he concludes this sermon by displaying 
the sharp contrast that he has been drawing through this entire sermon between receiving him and receiving his disciples or rejecting him and rejecting his disciples. And so this, is, this, this conclusion then is not something that he's just randomly pulling out of left field, right, if you like baseball, or, or randomly pulling out of thin air if you are a pilot of some kind, right? But um, rather, what he is doing is he's been drawing this contrast, he's been displaying this contrast really since he called Matthew and then ate with his sinful, horrible friends, quote-unquote, with the Pharisees grumbling off to the side. And so notice how he begins this, inclu- this conclusion. Again, he says, whoever then receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. So all throughout this sermon, Jesus has displaying for us, and he's been warning us about the guaranteed rejection and persecution that we can expect for being his disciple. Right? And, and so when he says here, when he says this here, he's not only uniting us then with his work, not uniting our work with his work, but even more so, he's uniting our entire person with his person. And, as this verse finishes out, with the work and the person of God the Father himself. And so, it's commonly understood, both in the cultural sphere and in the political sphere, not just in the first century, but even today, that a person's representative should be received and also treated as if that person's representative was really the bodily presence of that person himself. Right? This is the expectation that we actually give to our own ambassadors that we send out across the world from our government. Right? This is the expectation that we extend to ambassadors that come to us from other nations. Right? Those ambassadors are considered to be full bodily representations of the states in which they come from and vice versa. And they are accorded certain privileges and they're accorded certain respect because they are ambassadors coming with the authority in the name of their nation. The Apostle Paul actually understood this about believers. He understood this about the church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says this. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. God sending out his kingdom of heaven political ideals to the world through us. Now, politics being God's politics, not the politics that we like to talk about in the world, right? But then he finishes, he says, so we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so that idea of an ambassadorial role is, or ambassadorial role, should be understood when we read verse 40 here. And so in light of Jesus' statement, consider what what this means. He says, the Lord is telling us that we, as his disciples, as his people, as his church, we are an extension of, or a continuation of, his physical bodily presence on earth now that he has returned physically to the Father. We are an extension of Christ to the world. Now, if this seems somewhat absolutely fantastical and makes no sense, we actually already have this language from the rest of Scripture. Again, I'm going to quote Paul in a couple of places. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, that we... As the redeemed people of God, called to Christ by, by grace through faith, we are the body of Christ on earth. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul tells us that we are actually united with Christ. We are one with Christ because we have been hidden in Christ in the presence of God. And so then building out of what we've seen through Matthew 9 and Matthew 10, because we now bear the authority of Christ to the world, the authority that he has given us, both in the Great Commission, 
and back earlier in chapter 10 to heal the sick and cast out demons and raise the dead, because we now bear his authority, the Christian both literally and spiritually brings Christ with them when they enter into a place. Whether that be a town or a home or a city or etc. because we are his bodily presence on earth. So then, what he's telling us then is by receiving a believer who has come bearing the message of the kingdom of heaven, who has come bearing the ministry and the authority of Christ himself, receiving that believer is to receive Christ himself and to receive the Father. We are so intimately linked to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and to his authority that as one treats an ambassador of Christ... So one treats Christ himself. That's what Jesus is getting at in the message of this verse. And so then what he does in, this, in the next two verses is he gives us three specific examples of what this ambassadorial role might look like. And so he tells us in these, three, in these other two verses, he says, the one who receives a prophet then, because he is a prophet, receives a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So let, I want to look at those three different roles before we dive into that mystical, spiritual understanding of what's happening here. So just going in order, prophets. He, again, he says, the one who receives a prophet. So without trying too much to dive into the deep waters of the spiritual gift of prophecy, because that is a spiritual gift. I want to keep Jesus' words and this reference to prophets at least within the context of this missionary sermon. And so I do think we could actually mine this text to look at the spiritual gift of prophecy, but within the context of this sermon, within the context of this discourse of Matthew 9 and 10, what I think Jesus is referring to here is the work of proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming the ministry of Christ to the world. And the reason I think that is because throughout all of Scripture, prophets are known at the very minimum to be the person that proclaims God's word to the people, whether that be to God's people or that be a warning against other nations. And so, biblically then, true prophets refer to all who go out and rightly proclaim God's word to the world. In the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has actually already laid this groundwork for us by equating the work that we will do to the work that the Old Testament prophets did. And their response that they received is the same kind of response that we will receive. He says this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He has spent most of chapter 10 of Matthew talking about this very thing. And then he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so this phrase here in verse 41, where he says, because he is a prophet, this is interestingly, this is a rabbinic idiom. And this is now the second time that Jesus has drawn upon rabbinic idioms in this sermon. He did it back in chapter 9, verse 13, when the Pharisees were off on the side grumbling because he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. And so he says, go and learn what this means. That was a rabbinic idiom. And so now he's doing it again. Right? And so in the rabbinic tradition, a phrase like this, because he is fill in the blank, 
came with the understanding that the person being referred to or the role being referred to, that person was known or already proven to be whatever title that was put in that blank. Right? So in this case, this person is known to already be a prophet of the Lord. This person is known that is coming. If you will receive a prophet, you know he is a prophet. He is identified as a prophet. He is proven to be a prophet. This is recognizing someone for who they truly are. And in this case, this is a true prophet of the Lord that proclaims the message of Christ, his ministry, his person, his work. That's the prophet, but what about the righteous person? Notice, again, he's, he actually uses that same rabbinic idiom. He says, and the one who receives a righteous person. So it's the same thing. The meaning is the same. This person is known to be righteous. They are proven to be righteous by their conduct and by their lives. Now, biblically, a righteous person is one who lives life in obedience to the will of God. Meaning that being righteous is not a special category of Christian. Rather, being righteous is the definition of what it means to be a Christian because righteous people are those who have been made righteous by Christ and obey God's will by following Christ. And finally, he gives us this more ambiguous term in verse 42, and he uses this term little ones. Now, there are multiple ways to understand this, and I looked at too many commentators and study Bibles and everything to count on this particular phrase because it, it can kind of throw you off. You're reading it and you're like, well, what does he mean? So the more hyper-literalists right, would read this, and I, I read a few that said, well, you know, Jesus is probably teaching under a tree or something and sees some children there, and, and he's pointing to a child, and he sits one on his knee, and he says, whoever gives this little one a cup of cold water because he is my disciple, that person will by no means lose his reward, right? Okay, that's fine. I mean, children are by and large little, right? Both in stature and in knowledge, and especially in this culture, but in even a lot of cultures in the world, children are little socioeconomically, right? Children don't make their own money. So then, with that mindset, the hyper-literalists would then argue that these other two examples of a prophet and a righteous person are examples of different kinds of Christians. But again, being righteous is not an option for a Christian because our righteousness is found in Christ. Right? So I think they're wrong on that, but that's just my opinion. We can argue about this behind the church after, after worship if you want to. Right? But anyway, we, we can go out back. You know. Anyway, uh, but others assume, though, that Jesus, in this phrase, little ones, is speaking about those who are of little means. Right? So, so the poor, the sick, the needy, the hungry those who are hurting and ostracized, basically those, if you were to go all the way back to nine, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 9 through 13, those that are sitting around the dinner table at Matthew's house after Jesus calls Matthew to be one of his disciples. But, as I've already indicated, I sometimes like to be contrary to what most of the commentators are saying because sometimes I just, I'm ornery and that's what I like to do, right? So instead of seeing a distinction between a prophet or a righteous person, or a little one. I want to place all three of those roles within the context of what Jesus has been preaching for the last few weeks that we've been looking at. And as this whole sermon unfolds, we see it in Matthew 9, 9, we see it in chapter 10, verse 1, his attention is focused immediately on particular disciples, but then as the sermon itself unfolds, and it gets to this conclusion... It encompasses all of those who would be his disciples, not just the immediate 12, but everyone who would call upon his name for salvation. 
And so now that we get to verse 40 of chapter 10, he is not suddenly changing context and audience. It's not like every one of them have scattered and he has nobody else to talk to. His context hasn't changed. His audience hasn't changed. His focus is still upon those who would be his disciples. And so much like how being righteous is not a special category of Christian, but the definition of a Christian, in the same way the work of a prophet is also the work of every believer in Christ because every Christian has been commissioned by Christ to go with the gospel and to proclaim who Christ is in his authority to heal the sick and to raise the dead and to cast out demons. In the same way then, being a little one in its own way, refers to all believers in Christ. So again, consider, consider everything we've looked at from 9-9 all the way to here. Jesus promises us that all of his disciples, every single one, will be hated on account of his name, on account of his work, and the work that he has then sent us to do in his power and authority. And he promises us that the world will reject us because it has rejected him. It will hate us because it has hated him. And he has told us, and we saw this last week, he told us, don't deny me, but instead come to the terms, come to terms with the fact that the gospel will bring division. And sometimes that division will be even in your own household. In the Beatitudes, Jesus tells us, he says, those who are oppressed and persecuted, those who are poor in spirit, those who are meek and merciful and hunger and thirst for righteousness, these are little ones. These are the ones who are his disciples. And disciples of Christ are little ones according to the world standards as well. We're little ones because disciples are insignificant to the world. To the world, Disciples are ostracized. Disciples are hated because they come bearing the truth and the world hates the truth. And God constantly, and we see this through all of Scripture, God constantly uses the marginalized He uses the weakness of his own people to showcase his strength and his mercy and his grace. We saw it in the calling of Matthew, right? Matthew is ostracized by his own people. They absolutely, utterly hate him because in their mind, he has has become a traitor of them to the Romans. Tax collectors extorted money on a regular basis from their own people. They hated Matthew. He was ostracized. So we see it in the calling of Matthew. We see it with him dining with those friends of Matthew, the spiritually sick, the tax collectors, the sinners. We see it in Jesus healing the woman who has been walking around for 12 years with a hemorrhage. We see it in Jesus raising the daughter of the synagogue ruler from the dead. And so in the context of this particular sermon of Matthew 9.9 all the way now to 10.42, all disciples are prophets and righteous, and little. And so with that context, and with these descriptions of ourselves, Origen, again, he writes here, he says, this whole passage is mystical in meaning. It has has a mystical understanding that really, if we're being honest, it's it's really easy to kind of read through, move on, and we would totally miss it. And so I want to try to work out what Origen means, at least by looking at just a couple of elements. And I literally mean a couple. I don't mean any more than two, right? So, so not only is this mystical meaning just really, honestly, it's just really super cool, but it really is extremely helpful as we end this missionary discourse of Jesus 
and go with the gospel and go in his authority. So look again at verse 42. It's that last sentence there. He says, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is my disi- because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, for a moment, I, I, we are going to look at the mystical thing, but I want to stick with straightforward for just one second because it's helpful. In this culture and climate, right, it's first century Palestine, right, we, we understand that uh, high up gets a lot of rain, it gets a lot of snow sometimes, but lower in the valleys sometimes, especially as you get further south, we talked about the Negev in Sunday school this morning. It gets hot, it gets craggy, it's desertous, there's a wilderness in that area, right? Jesus goes into the Judean wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There are dry, hot places. This is the Middle East, it's hot. <laughs> in this climate, a cup of cold water to a weary traveler or even to a worker was expected as a basic form of hospitality, right? If a traveler is coming by your home and they are thirsty, you give them water. It's not that big of a deal. You do it because it is the least amount you can do to be hospitable to somebody coming by, right? Now, let's be honest. In, in West Tennessee, for the past three days, it has been nothing short of boiling lava hot, right? <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. So the last few days, if you're like Sharon and I, what, what we have done is we close the blinds, we draw all the curtains, we turn the heater to an acceptable level. I mean, the, the air conditioner, not the heater. To an acceptable level. And we just wait it out, right? We sulk in the dark and we wait it out, right? <laughs> My office at home, I have, I have room darkening blinds. And that room is actually the hottest room in the house. So I'm actually growing a hydrangea bush on the corner of the house to hopefully shade that corner some to give me some shade in the summertime. It's not going to help much, but hopefully it'll help even a little bit. But I wrote most of this with a lamp on over my desk because it's just that hot. I wrote in the dark, right? So it has been hot. And there is nothing like a cup of ice cold water on a really hot day. So keep the water in mind because this is where I want to go. The water that Jesus is referring to here absolutely has a literal meaning, right? It's a hot day. It's a hot climate. A cup of cold water is literally refreshing. But it also has a spiritual meaning. It has a mystical realness to it. And this mystical or this spiritual reality doesn't make it less real or less literal. In fact, it probably more so points to the real reality of our salvation that's found in God. There's more going on to water than it just being water. That's the point. So let me explain. In Scripture... Water is symbolic for a whole host of things, especially as it relates to our lives in God. So in Scripture, water means creation. It means deliverance and rest. Water means salvation. Water means the Holy Spirit. Water means baptism. It means the Scriptures themselves. So let me give you some examples. We are told in Genesis 1... That God creates all things out of the chaotic waters, the formless void of the earth, right? He brings order out of chaos. In Exodus 14, the Hebrews were delivered from the Egyptians through the waters of the Red Sea, symbolizing baptism in the Old Testament. Forty years later, after wandering in the desert in Joshua 3, they entered into the Promised Land through the waters of the Jordan. The Jordan itself split. They walked through on dry ground. They left stones in the middle of the river to to consecrate that area, and the waters came back together. 
In John chapter 4, Jesus tells the woman at the well that he will give living water that springs up into eternal life. In John 7, Jesus proclaims that if anyone thirsts, let them come to him and drink, and quote, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then in the very next verse, John gives us the context of what Jesus means. John says this, he says, now Jesus said this about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. We are baptized in water. We've talked about this a lot, right? Making, being baptized in water makes us one with Christ and one with one another. In Romans 6, Paul tells us that in baptism we are united with Christ both in his death and his resurrection. In the Great Commission, we are commanded to be baptized in the name of the triune God into the faith. And out of the chaotic waters of our former lives in Adam, God, just as he did in creation, raises up a new creation that is now hidden in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We are consecrated. We are sanctified. We are made holy through the waters of Holy Scripture. In Ephesians 5, Paul tells husbands, he says, We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her and he sanctified her. He made her holy by washing her with the water of the word. And because Christ is both the word of God and the living water of salvation, whoever then brings the gospel into a home as a prophet or a righteous person or a little one, whoever brings the ministry of healing, of raising the dead, of casting out demons in the authority of Christ, they bring with them the cup of cold water of salvation to all who have been chosen by God to be a disciple of Christ. Everything about Jesus' concluding statements, especially as it circles around this water, is related to our participation in Him, our participation with Him, and in the proclamation of the kingdom of heaven in every aspect of His ministry. So then out of these waters of participation, He then tells us, here's the second mysterious understanding, He tells us about these rewards that are offered. He says again, whoever receives a prophet because he is a prophet then they receive a prophet's reward. The same with a righteous person. You receive a righteous person's reward. If you give a cup of cold water, if you give salvation to even one of the little ones, you will not lose your reward. So what does he mean? The Greek word that Matthew uses here, and I'm probably going to butcher it, is, is misthos, which is the word for reward. But this word in context suggests a couple of things. It suggests that these rewards are, have a dual purpose. They are immediate, but they are also later, they are eschatological, right? Meaning that they are already, but they are not yet. These rewards are the rewards given at the time of faith, of regeneration, but they are also given at the time, like we just confessed, when Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And this term receiving then is not only acceptance of the prophet or acceptance of a righteous person or acceptance of a little one, but it also is directly tied to our mystical, our spiritual, our mysterious participation in Christ. And that underscores this entire sermon that he has been given. The reward for accepting an ambassador of Christ, for accepting their message or their ministry, is based upon what that Christian brings with them when they enter into a town or a home. Right? So a prophet, as those who come proclaiming the word of God, 
the reward received is what the prophet has brought. They brought the gospel with them. They have brought the knowledge of the bodily death and resurrection and burial, burial and resurrection of Christ. They have brought the knowledge and the understanding, the word of God on how to believe in Christ and have life in his name. That is a prophet's reward. A righteous person's reward is what a righteous person has brought, which is the ministry of Christ, their righteousness, the healing, casting out demons, raising the dead. And as little ones are concerned, even the most economically poorest of Christians brings the reward of the Spirit of Christ which dwells in every believer. Each of these rewards are rewards of the kingdom of heaven, which we have been commissioned to go and proclaim. So the one who receives a Christian receives Christ himself because they receive his word and they receive his ministry. And Jesus tells us at the end of verse 42, he says, no one who receives, no person who receives his ambassadors in such an accepting way will lose the reward that that ambassador has brought with them. Hilary of Potier, I think I'm saying that correctly. He was a church father in the area that is now France. That city still exists. Uh, he proclaims here, he says this, he says, the one who receives a prophet receives him who dwells within the prophet and becomes worthy of that prophet's reward. And a similar reward is allotted for receiving a righteous person. One who does this becomes righteous by honoring righteousness. In this way, Hillary says, in this way, righteousness is attained through faith, taking on mercy as its duty. And this happens when one person receives a righteous person and becomes a prophet himself by reason of his own reverence. To receive an ambassador of Christ is to receive Christ himself. Origen builds on that. He says this, Receiving the believer is to receive Christ who speaks and dwells within the believer because Christ is the source of all of their teaching and all of their ministry. And the one who receives the word of wisdom and everything that is Christ receives the Father also. This is why understanding our positions as ambassadors of Christ and the reception of every ambassador of Christ is so important to grasp. And this is why Jesus ends this sermon this way. Because it's important not only in how we conduct ourselves when we face persecution and rejection, but also in how we actually go. It, under, it helps us understand how we are to go with his authority and go with his message. And how also we receive those who come in the name of Christ. This is why the, Benedict, the Benedictines accept every person as if they are Christ himself. Because as the book of Hebrews tells us, sometimes you might be entertaining angels unawares. And so this tells us, Jesus is telling us, he says, not only do we receive, when we receive a believer, not only do we receive the reward of the gospel and the ministry of Christ, but when we are received and not rejected, then that house or that town or that city has been found worthy. And we are to greet it. We are to pour out the cold, refreshing water of the gospel on it. We are to heal their sick in it. We are to cast out demons from that place. And we are to raise their dead. And let the peace of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which surpasses all understanding, rest upon that place. To the glory of God and to the proclamation of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.